Welcome to the Running Hurt Podcast, where we explore the psychological side of injury in college cross country and track and field. I'm your host, Matthew Peacock. On the show today, mind is body. Stories about the effect the mind has on our physical well-being. So, last episode, you may remember Chris Avila, a runner at Williams College, and he suggested that mental health issues can lead to injury. Today, I want to explore that question further. So, we start today's episode with Thomas Paniconi, a yoga instructor in Bernardsville, New Jersey. Now, one night, Thomas is driving home from work, but he sees some blues and twos in his rearview mirror. He pulls over, the cop walks over to the driver's seat, but to Thomas's surprise, he doesn't get a speeding ticket. I was stopped, I was pulled over, and you know, a cop said, hey, you know, do you know you have a warrant out for your arrest? And I said, no, I had no clue. I probably, I wouldn't be driving if I knew there was a warrant out for my arrest, I'd be scared. And he goes, all right, well, listen, I gotta take you in. I was like, okay, can I grab a couple things out of my car? I wasn't like thinking this was gonna be all that severe. I was like, okay, you're gonna call my mom, I'm gonna get picked up, whatever. I was then in a car ride, after going to the local station, I was in a car ride, and I was talking with the two officers that were bringing me to the, um, to the station. And they were like, you don't really know what's going on right now, do you? And I'm like, no, I don't know, I just heard that there was a warrant, I got it. You know, you guys don't really know why there's a warrant, but we need to find out. And they're like, no, you, you, you have a, you have a, um, a non-bail warrant out because from the state because of a missed payment for child support. And I was like, what? Like it all gets taken out of my paycheck. Thomas set up his bank account so that each month a portion of his income automatically went towards his child support. But that month, the payment didn't go through. The company that you know, like that pays us my, my paycheck typically garnishes my child support wages. Cause that's always nice to have, you know, no stress, just kind of, Hey, take it out. It's easy. Something happened and it didn't get transferred. It got taken out of my paycheck, but it something happened along the way and the state never received it. But Thomas didn't know this at the time. And he's frantically trying to figure out what's going on. You know, first person first is my boss. I'm like, yo, what the heck? This happened. And she did everything she could to try to undo it, but it was it was already done. She said, Hey, listen, the payment shows that it got taken out. I don't know what to do from there. She called the court, they said it's an unveiled warrant, blah, blah, blah. But even as Thomas tries to undo this mistake, a few hours later he ends up in jail. Fast forward like three hours after being fingerprinted and mugshotted, I was slapped into the local prison. Into a freaking holding cell with tons of other inmates. I'm wearing a jump, an orange jumpsuit, orange converse. I, I just was so taken back. I could not believe it. I was, here I am. I'm in jail. I'm really in jail. And you're not, you're allowed multiple phone calls. Everyone thinks like only one phone call. They have a phone in the holding cell. There's a couple of them and you can call collect. And if the person you're calling receives it, then you can work out a payment thing. It's like calling from a payphone without coins. So what's the first thing I do? I call my family. I'm like, 
like I call my sister and I'm like, you know, when it's, when it's like, uh, hi, you have received a call from, and I'm like, Liz, it's Tom. I'm in jail. Help. And then it's like, would you like to receive the call? You know, it's not just like, you don't say your name. So it was kind of a, a funny situation. And then I got my, you know, I got called back and everything. And I found out that I'm, it's a non-bail warrant. And then I'm going to have to wait there until the judge comes back. And then I find out the judge isn't coming back till Friday. And this is Monday afternoon. So I then realized that I'm going to be spending the next couple of days in this lovely place. So Thomas is to spend the next five days in jail. And that's when reality sets in. It all just settled in. You know, just like, like, yup, this is really, really happening. Like, this isn't just kind of happening. It's really happening. And then not only is it going to just happen for tonight, but I know that I'm going to be here until Friday. And I'm looking around with all these dudes who are there for criminal reasons that I don't even know yet. And I'm just there because my payment company missed a payment for my child support. So I, I got zillions of thoughts racing through my mind. You know, I'm thinking about like, when somebody asks me what I do, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to be like an MMA fighter or something. I got to like, I don't know. I, I train, uh, you know, I'm a, I have the license to kill and I, I don't know. I was just like, ah, I'm going to get beat up. And uh, somebody, so that eventually happened. I'm sitting there at the table that I'm the new guy. And one of these two comes up to me and he's like, yo, you know, whatever, what are you here for? I told him, he was like, yo, that, that's whack. And he was like, yo, what do you do for a living? And I was like, I'm a yoga instructor. I'm like, shit, I said it. I'm like, no, I said I'm a yoga instructor. This is where I just get beat up every day. And to my amazement, he was amazed. He was like, whoa, okay, hold on. All right, I have a bunch of questions. As if like he knew already somehow yoga fixes body pain. And he starts asking me about his shoulders and his back. And this is when things get really interesting. During this conversation, we all get sent back to your cell. You get back to you get sent back to your cell every like hour, and you get stuck there for an hour. So I get in there. My, you don't call them a roommate; they're called bunkies. My bunkie's there, and he's coming off of like some crazy, crazy drugs. He's like shivering and sweating and rolling around, and I'm like, I cannot believe I'm in this little room. So I'm like, okay, I'm just gonna stretch. And like, like this guy's pretty much asleep, whatever. I go to touch my toes and I could barely reach past my knees. That morning, I kid you not, I bet I could have put my palms on the ground. I mean, I was Gumby at that time. I was teaching so much yoga. I could not reach past my knees. I was like, what? The amount of tension in my back, in my legs, in my neck, was indescribable. I'm like, hold on, there's a fluke. So I tried a couple of different other poses. I put my ankle over my thigh. I create a figure four. I try to sit down. I feel like, like somebody poured concrete into my muscles and I just couldn't move. I could not believe it. And it was in that moment that it all came together. And I fully understood how mental and emotional stress immediately, directly has an effect on our body's ranges of motion. 
We'll return to Thomas's story later in the show. But this connection between stress and the body's response to it, you can see it in running too. I'm Jordan Carpenter. I'm the men's uh, head cross country and track and field coach at uh, Pomona Pitzer in Claremont, California. So Jordan became head coach of Pomona Pitzer three years ago. But before that, he spent a year as an assistant coach. And it was during that time he noticed the effect of stress on his student athletes. At Pomona Pitzer, uh, I, I was an assistant coach here for a year um, before um, getting the opportunity to become the head coach, um, which I've been in that role for, for over three years now. But so I kind of had the opportunity just to kind of sit back and watch, um, you know, work with a really experienced head coach and, and coach Boston. Um, but just watch, see how athletes responded to, to the workouts, see if it was what I kind of expected you know, watching well, who is getting injured and when and, and, and just talking with the student athletes, because I wasn't doing a ton of, um, you know, writing of workouts, but I was doing a lot of interacting with with the student athletes and, and just spending time with them and building those relationships. And, and what I came to realize really quickly was just, like I mentioned before, just that stress, the outside stress of, of being a college student. Um, and, you know, especially at a, a very rigorous institution, which you're, you're familiar with at, at Williams College. You know, I always joke that the second best liberal arts college in oh. the country. <laughs> Don't no, know about that. But, uh... <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, no, really, really awesome program, really awesome school, and, but requires a lot of, of the students. Um, and, and it's similar to our schools. Um, and so I got to kind of see what kind of impact that had on the student athlete. And, and I, I kind of realized pretty quick, put that connection, well, these students that are really stressed out, well, we're starting to see injuries. We're starting just to see them not perform as well. Um, and so I really had a chance to kind of just sit back, watch that. And that's when I really clicked and going, okay, well, this is different than my experience where, you know, I didn't really have that much, you know, I was fortunate. I didn't have that many outside stressors. You know, I was able to sleep. I was able to do all these things. So it never really occurred to me that, okay, this is a big issue. And, and the training that we do needs to account for this. So Jordan adjusted his coaching philosophy to account for this stress. And he did this in two ways. First, he built relationships that normalize talking about stress. You know, having a relationship where they can feel really comfortable coming to you with, with whatever they have going on. So, uh, if that's, you know, relationship stress, family stress, you know, academic stress or whatever, where they're going to feel like they have a safe space with me um, to come and tell me this so that I know. And, and, and then that's really important to being able to adjust the training. Cause if I know, okay, well, this athlete's been super stressed and they, they've been getting five hours of sleep at most for the last like four nights in a row. Well, to go ask them to do this really challenging workout, well, that's not going to benefit them. And that's probably going to be something that's going to, you know, push them over the edge or lead to an injury or, or um, something that, that's negative that we don't want to happen. And second, he made his training super flexible. Just being able to be flexible with your training. So again, if I know I have a, a specific student athlete that's been really stressed and I don't know, we'll make up a, an example, but uh, let's say a you know classic workout let's say it's five by mile at i don't know 10k down to 8k pace it's cross country or something like that and we want something specific 
um, which is, is a pretty stressful workout, obviously, depending on the rest. Um, but there's nothing that says that a student athlete only is going to get benefit from doing that exact workout or those exact paces or that number of reps, um, right? That athlete could get plenty of adaptation from doing three or four knowing that they have all this other stress and knowing that that three or four then is a, a manageable load, something that their body's going to be able to handle and adapt to. Um, that's the important part. So I think it's just being really flexible in the training. And, and again, if you have those relationships built with your student athletes, um, they're really comfortable telling you when there's things going on. Um, I think sometimes in our sport, we want to, you know, we have a sport where it's, it's, you know, we talk about being really tough and we know it's going to hurt. And, and I think that leads sometimes to us, you know, pushing really hard in workouts thinking, well, this is the only, this is the path, right? This is the way we get good. But, you know, sometimes it's, you know, we need some moderate efforts that are manageable that we can handle that we can do repeatedly and still manage all of these other stressors we have in life. And we're going to get the, the adaptations we need. I should mention that last year, the Pomona Pitzer men's cross country team won the national championship. But here's the crazy thing. If you take a look at their training, it's not that intense. I think overall, just our training is probably less intense than you would find at a lot of programs. And it's just knowing, again, as if we take the general student at, at our schools or similar schools, they've got a lot going on. And, and they're, they're obviously taking some really challenging courses. They're probably doing, you know, they're involved in another club. They're probably doing an internship in the summer or research, or maybe they're doing that during the school year. So they just have a lot going on. So like, I just think to ask them to do, I don't know, this quote on quote unquote, really stressful or intense training or something that you might read in a training book and say like, this is the only way to do it. I just don't think that takes into account the individual student athlete and their stressors. So you look at our training and, and you, you might not think it's that hard. Uh, but for our students and, and just the body only knows stress. So it's worked really well and they've been able to adapt. And, and I think for the most part, we've stayed pretty healthy. Um, obviously, again, I, I don't think you're ever going to completely eliminate injuries in our sport, but, um, you know, I think, I think you can do a lot to, to make sure that student athletes are adapting and, and you're, you know, listening to their individual needs. And if you take a look at Pomona Pitcher's top runner, Ethan Woodlansky, he provides a great example of how Jordan's approach works in practice. Ethan Woodlansky, who was our, our top runner this year, uh, finished seventh at the, the national cross country meet as a sophomore. Um, you know, we had a, we had a workout we were doing, um, I think it was either a five or six mile, like threshold run. And you know, typically he's always kind of leading our group, especially if it's more of an aerobic strength, you know, that's kind of his, his specialty. Um, he can just go kind of grind for, for a long time. Uh, but he came up to me before the workout and said, Hey coach, you know, I'm feeling a little off today. I'm going to bump back to group two. And I think that's a perfect example of Ethan being comfortable enough to, or no, well, knowing his body well enough to say, okay, Hey, I'm not going to be ready to do X pace that I know group one's going to be at, that's not going to be a, a good thing for me overall in my training. Maybe he probably could have done it if he had to, you know, he could have gone out there and, and suffered through it and, and taken on all that stress, but he knew, okay, I'm not ready to handle whatever pace they were doing at the front. 
but group two is going to be a good effort for me that I know I'm going to be able to recover from that I know I can handle. And there were no questions, you know, I said, okay, great. Sounds good. And he, he went with group two. Nobody asked questions. Nobody was like, well, why is he in group two and this person's in group one? Um, so I think that's a really good example of everything coming together. You know, I think how you want as a coach. And the reason this approach works is because it accounts for stress that already takes a huge toll on the body. Stress that can even lead to injury. Your body has a physiological reaction to stress. It doesn't matter what that stress is from, right? We have, you know, these, these different chemicals in our body that are produced when we're feeling stress, whether that's from running, whether that's from having a, a lot of work to get done, whether that's from family or relationships or whatever it may be. Um, and our body doesn't know how to differentiate it. It just knows, okay, I'm feeling this, I need, I'm going to create these chemicals and, and that's the response. And, and I, so I think it's a huge, I think it's one of the biggest effects on ultimately what's going to lead to injury. Um, and I, I think it's an area that is known, but I don't know that we know the best way to approach it in sports yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's, it's, we all know it, we all talk about it. Um, but like, how do we, how do we manage it? How do we get the students support that they need? I think that's a really new area and tied in with the mm-hmm. athletics piece. I think that's a really new area that a lot of colleges are first starting to, to explore and, and try to figure out. Cause I mm-hmm. think it is, it is really big. Um, not only just for injuries, but just you know, your health in general, mm-hmm. it's, it's huge. That was Jordan Carpenter, the head coach of men's track and field and cross country at Pomona Pitzer. Last year, he led the men's cross country team to their first national championship in program history. So I want to shift now to talking about the mind and physical health. Um, And so I'll start off with this. So what, in your view and your experience, what role does mental health play in injury? I mean, I, I don't think you can separate them. Like, I don't think you can have a conversation about mental health and physical health mutually exclusively. That's Ethan Barron, the head coach of men's track and field at Williams College. And he believes that mental and physical health are one and the same. Mental health is physical health. Like it's it's physical health of the brain. You know, and, and I think if we're if we're gonna have a conversation about mental health, we need to take it out of the ether. Let me break this down for you. So Ethan believes that the way mental health is talked about now is as if it's this wispy cloud above our head that has little connection to our physical well-being. But that is far from the truth. And he thinks that changing how we describe mental health can improve both our mental and physical well-being. There are times when I, I refer to depression as the, you know, the common cold of, of, of mental health. Um, and I do that to try to get more people to realize like it's something everyone's going to deal with. Like in... in, in differing degrees. Um, everyone's going to have low points. Everyone's going to get the cold at some point. 
Uh, and so let's start having this conversation of, uh, you know, not as a question, like, let's take it out of the extreme. Let's take it out of the shadows. Um, but that being said, it, you know, and, and this is where my wife really pushes back is there are elements of depression that are so much worse than the common cold, like to refer to depression as the common cold totally paints it in the, in a, um, you know, innocuous state or like something that you'll easily get through. And, and, and I, so if there, I need to find a metaphor that works both ways that, 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 that helps people realize how that like elements of depression are without a doubt a, a physical thing as if the common cold that we will all get based on different things and we'll, and how we respond to it, you know, or whether or not that turns into pneumonia or just goes away after a few days. But then there are, you know, bipolar disorder is not the common cold, you know, and, 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 you know, some people wrestle with depression for their entire life and it's not going to be, it's not the common cold to them. And so I'm not trying to like, um, minimize what they go through. Um, but at the same time, I think more people, could benefit from thinking about, you know, mental health and where we're at in a physical health way of like, I'm feeling a little depressed. Like if you roll your ankle, there's this stuff you do to, to fix your ankle. If you're feeling depressed, people respond in a totally different way, even though we have an equally well-established proven list of things you can do when you're feeling depressed to help you recover from that just as well as we do rolling your ankle. In fact, it might even be more well accepted than ice and, you know, compression is now being called into like, you know, question for fixing a rolled ankle. So, um, so yeah, I think it's a, it's a hard conversation to have, but I think the moment you start looking at the brain as a physical as part of your body, um, you see how they're totally overlapped. And this applies to how we deal with injury too. I think that makes sometimes the injury even harder, right? Like there's this chicken and egg aspect of physical injury, mental health, physical injury, mental health that just go hand in hand with each other. And you can't just treat the body without treating the mind. Um, they, they need to go hand in hand. Uh, and if you just ignore half of it, that's like a huge chunk. Like if we're going to talk formulaic, there's a huge variable you're just choosing to ignore. Mm -hmm. is, is that a variable you feel that you've learned to take into account more and more as you've progressed through your coaching career? That is the biggest variable in the equation. If you aren't doing it, if you aren't like it, even healthy, even healthy. Uh, if I had one, like the one piece of advice I give to young coaches is study psychology. Like the human brain is the translator. Like it's everything. And it's everything in injury. It's everything in training. It's everything in health. Like it is absolutely critical to understand the human brain, both in a general sense and each individual, like our, you know, each individual brings their own 
uh, you know, personality and mental constructs to the equation. And like, you absolutely need to have an understanding of those in order to move them down their path as efficiently and, and far as you can get them. Like there is no bigger variable than that. And yes, early in my career, I used to think a lot about like long jump technique and high jump technique and hurdle technique and the physics of the sport. Uh, and it took me a few years to realize that is, that is the, the color of the shutters on the house and the human brain is the house. And, um, you you better learn how to work and and build that house as best you can. And it was at this point in the conversation when things got really interesting. If I put two athletes on the track and I give them the exact same workout and one athlete believes this is the right workout. They believe this workout is going to make them stronger and better. Their body physically releases hormones to that effect it releases you know it, it's gonna it's gonna release testosterone it's gonna to promote recovery and muscle growth you know it's gonna release uh hormones to like dopamine to make you want to keep going back and doing that that work so that you can get another hit of getting stronger and faster um if an athlete feels this is the wrong workout this is too much or i shouldn't be doing this or it's the wrong time their body will release a totally different cocktail of hormones that will uh that will produce more of like your basic stress response to try to inhibit them from doing that again it'll physically tear the body down and it will you know try to promote psychological and physical effects to not do this again we believe this is hurting us. We don't want to do this again. So we're going to have that kind of like physical hormonal response. And this is where the, the physical and the mental are so overlapped. So simply based on whether or not that athlete believes, belief, believes that, that this is the right workout is going to have a different hormonal response hmm. and, and whether or not their body gets stronger or whether their that 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 their body gets teared down, and so we're we're literally talking Schrodinger's cat here, of like, do you believe the you know the cat is alive or dead? It's at the same time, and so so this is both a, simultaneously a good workout and a bad workout. The only thing that matters, and this is what blows most coaches away, and coaches refuse to believe this, and it has what has changed my life as a coach only thing that matters is whether your athlete believes it is an appropriate workout. And if your athlete doesn't believe it is the appropriate workout, I don't care how much you believe it's the appropriate workout. You need to modify it and you need to change it to, to foster that belief. You need to do whatever it takes to give them the belief because if they don't, then it isn't. And if they do, then it is. And so the like my job is simply to to get athletes to a point where they believe what they are doing is going to make them better because then it does. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. This blows my mind. So purely based on whether you believe a given workout is good for you or not, your body will release a set of hormones which will either make you stronger or tear you down. 
Remember what Jordan Carpenter was doing at Pomona Pitzer? He adjusted his runner's training based on the input they gave him about their stress levels. And this belief that Ethan's talking about are the nuts and bolts of why Jordan's approach works so well. The same principles apply if we return to the example of Ethan Woodlansky, Pomona Pitcher's number one runner. If he had decided to go with a fast group instead of dropping back to the second group, his body would have released a completely different set of hormones that would have harmed his recovery. And this is purely because he believed it was the wrong thing for him to do on that given day. This is crazy. And this connection between belief and our body's response to it, Ethan Barron thinks it can break the injury cycle too. If an athlete gets injured doing a, a training routine, how can you throw them back into the same routine after they maybe rehab and get healthy? Like psychologically and maybe even unconsciously, um, you know, now the, now the formula that we're talking about gets really simple. Athlete A plus workouts B led to injury. We're not going to change A or B and yet we're going to expect a different result definition of insanity and i think some coaches who really really are very connected to workouts and don't like to change them because it's what worked for them or it's what's worked in the past for some athletes try to really highlight well you're different now we did those exercises you know we we're, we're taking these supplements you know you know ABC is different about you, so you can do this training. Um, and I honestly, that might be true, but it's still okay to do some different training, to modify the tra training, to do something a little different. Like there's no holy grail to training. Who's to say you can't, you know, change both, you know, rehab the injury, get a little stronger, change the athlete, and also change the, the stimulus that you're doing. Um, but that every injury sets, in my opinion, sets you back to square one. You know, you, you, you as the coach made some choices, set a, set a, a progression that resulted in injury. All right. That you just lost that trust. You don't get to, and, and, and you're probably starting from farther back than you did when that person came in as a first year. Like you need to, you need to be slow and rebuild that up to get to a point where the buy-in is is key because um, like think about it from what we were just talking about with the hormonal response like if they don't have the buy-in you're releasing a ton of cortisol and a ton of like you know stress hormones that are tearing the body down and inhibiting recovery and muscle growth so like that's the biggest obstacle is after an injury how can you get the athlete to a point where they believe what they are doing is making them better? That was Ethan Barron, head coach of men's track and field at Williams College. So when we started the show, we heard from Thomas Panacone. And when we left off, he was arrested for a missed child support payments. And the stress of being in prison had a huge effect on his body. But his story doesn't end there. Thomas had to wait four more days in prison before the judge decided whether he could leave or not. And over those four days, the pain got worse and worse. I, I just was so agonizingly 
tight and my, my body just started to hurt more and more and more. I made it through the first night. Next morning was even worse. I couldn't, I could move less. And it, it was like, I couldn't just say it was because what they call a mattress wasn't worth sleeping on or the fact that I had to go to the bathroom in front of this dude. It was just like, it was everything. And I continued to stretch despite it. I was like, I don't care. I went to the basketball court. I was like trying to move around. One of the kids was like kind of fun. He wasn't so like worried about his image in that place. So he kind of played also playing basketball and I kept stretching a little bit. And it, after playing basketball, I felt pretty good just because I feel like I was like in a good state. And I met a kid that was kind of like fun to chat with. But then he got taken out. He had to get moved into another holding block. And there I was isolated again. And so it was the second day. It was just pain all for the rest of the day. The third day, Wednesday, uh, was probably the worst day of it all. I was just in the middle of it. Um, wasn't really talking to many people. By that time, I was pretty much called down dog because of the yoga, uh, which is kind of funny. But it just, man, I, I try to read books. I just, uh, nothing helped. Nothing helped. I try to like just sit there and I just couldn't because I just knew where I was and it was just, ugh. But on Thursday, this guy named Moli walks up to Thomas during lunch. Thursday came around and this dude, they called him Moli, but he almost like mole, like the sauce, you know, like the, the mm. yeah, delicious. Try making that. That's a lot. Of, that's fun. Um, he comes over, offers me his food, his lunch, his rations. And I'm just ticked off. I grew up with, you know, four brothers. And he's like, Hey, down dog, you want this? And I'm like, why? What'd you do to it? Like, just kind of like, like just annoyed. Like, and he was like, Whoa, all right. Geez. And I mean, this guy's towering over me, six, eight, 275 pounds. I mean, he's a big dude. And I didn't even care. I'm like, punch me in the face. It'd probably feel better than all the other shit that's going on. And he was like, I just had a couple questions and wanted to offer you my food. And I was like, oh, my bad, dude. I'm just sorry. Like, yeah, sit down. He was like, hey, listen. So I hear you're a yoga instructor. And I'm like, here come the jokes. <laughs> here comes the badgery. And he was like, I have some questions. He was like, first things first is, does it work? I'm like, does it work? What do you mean, does it work? He was like, does it work? And I was like, it depends what you're using it for. But yeah, it usually works. He was like, because you know, being in here, I miss working out. I miss lifting weights. So, but more importantly, I miss how my, being around my friends made me feel. And I feel like because I'm here, my body hurts more because of that. Now, this guy is reiterating what I've already come to realize is, you know, evident within myself. But he's saying it through a different means. You know, he's coming to realize that his state of mind is affecting the way he feels, though he's looking at it through it more in a sense of depression because he's not having the, the uplifting, joyful experiences that he would outside with his friends. In here is a little bit more doom and gloom. And he's saying his body hurts because of it. And I thought that was intriguing because it was almost an intuitive kind of... Um, observation versus any clinical training or any you know years of going through yoga practice or teachings and all this stuff I, I just thought that was kind of it stood out to me 
So then he proceeded to then ask if I could, if I could show him, if I could teach him some things. I was completely, you know, surprised, you know, and I said, yeah, we got locked into our cell at that time. He said, okay, after lockdown, we'll come back out. We'll do it on the basketball court. So later on, Thomas heads out to the basketball court, but to his surprise, it's not just Mole who shows up. We got locked out. We got, you know, we got let out. Everybody does their, like, get some water. Like, everybody does their things for a little bit. Makes a couple phone calls. And sure enough, not only is he out there, but, like, 12 the other inmates are out there. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. I get, like, a little trembly, a little nervous. And they're just out there standing, walking around, kind of, like, waiting. They don't know what to do. And they're like, yo, you going to do yoga? I was like, yeah. And I was like, does anybody know what yoga really is? And someone was like, I think they do like this. And then everybody starts laughing. And someone was like, no, 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 no. They do this. And it does like a ballet thing. Everyone's cracking up. And I just seized the moment to give these guys that experience that I mentioned while teaching hit or spin a chance to escape, a chance to just get out of that state of mind. And we went through about, 45 minute, 50 minute class that involved a lot of like push-ups and jumping things and more of like a hit class with some stretching. And I would show off and press into a handstand and do, you know, more, I was more flexible than they were. And it was like this big interaction. There's a lot of conversation going along, a lot of joke making, a lot of like teasing. And it was fun because they were all cracking up but also had them yelling like, ah, you know, screaming. And, and, uh, but at the end I got them into Shavasana or that last kind of part of a yoga class where it's silent and they were just laying there and we, there was no music or anything, but there seemed to be just this like ominous, like they just felt like alive almost. So there was like a hum in the room. And it was pretty cool. And they laid there for a little bit. And then we just kind of got up and we did like a big like clap down instead of like oming and, you know, a lot of high fives. After this yoga class with the inmates, Thomas heads back to his cell. But this time, something's different. We got locked down and stuff. And I was in my, in, in the, in my room and I didn't have a bunkie at the time because that other guy got moved. And I dropped something and I just bent down to pick it up. And I realized, I was like, wait a minute. I could touch my toes and my legs could be straight. And I was like, wow. And then I started doing all the other stressing, like uh, stretch assessments that I had done that first day. I did it that day and it was, I was almost back to normal. I couldn't believe it. I was like, wow, that, that just 40 minutes of experience of really getting out of my head, getting, you know, just getting back into that state of being almost immediately alleviated. So as fast as it came in, it almost left. And that's where I was just like, it gave me goosebumps. It still sometimes gives me goosebumps. That afternoon for dinner and the next morning before I was released, a lot of the guys that attended that class came and tried to give me like their slippers or sweatpants or like the cookies and stuff. Cause you, when you're there for a long time, you can develop like credit based on jobs that you do. And with that credit, you can buy special things, sweatpants and, you know, all these little get things. And these guys, most likely, I can't guarantee, 
experienced what I experienced when I went back into my room. This profound sense of just release and perhaps an increase in maybe energy or joy or mobility or whatever they experienced when they went back in, it was enough for them to just be just so grateful that they then gave the little they had to me, you know, which all I did was just give them that little experience. And then, and as touching as it was, you know, I, knowing that I was leaving, I was just like, you know, don't want to get keep your things. Um, but it was very, very, very touching to have, to have done that. And after that time in prison, Thomas changed. I left there aside from an apology from the judge saying, you know, we received your payment and sorry, you waited five days. Um, but that I left there fully understanding the power the state of mind has on our physical, you know, our physical body. And um, I've kind of made it my mission to incorporate a more of an emotional experience within all of my classes, though the physical tends to be the focus. I really try to weave in an emotional guiding experience that may have a room laughing, may have them um, getting a little choked up or having them kind of just feel a little bit more uh, secure about themselves or maybe, you know, uh, whatever else it you know, might be. But I, I find that to be the, the most powerful element in any kind of training, though it is truly the hardest to um, to master. That was Thomas Panacone, a yoga instructor in Bernardsville, New Jersey. That's the show. I want to give a special thanks to Thomas, Jordan, and Ethan. Make sure to follow Running Hurts wherever you get your podcasts. And share this episode with your friends. Tune in next week for episode 3, Building Culture. What does it take to build a supportive injury environment on collegiate cross-country and track and field teams? I'm your host, Matthew Peacock. Thanks for listening.